Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good? Good? Having a good Memorial Day weekend? Enjoying this weather? Finally? Ready for the heat? It's coming, right? We're going camping next weekend, and uh, I can't wait. Grandkids and everybody, and it's going to be just wonderful. I'm hoping uh, that you get a chance to spend some time with family and friends uh, this weekend, remembering the purpose of Memorial Day and what it means for us as a nation, but also just enjoying the freedoms that we have. So today, it's my distinct pleasure to share with you um, the last of uh, three core values that we've been uh, preaching on for the last three weeks. So two weeks ago, Trevor came up and shared with us the importance of biblical community. Didn't he do an awesome job? You know, you got, until you actually stand up here behind this podium, you don't understand the responsibility, the effort, the preparation that goes into it. And to see someone like, like Trevor just take that on uh, very seriously, but just do, it, do a fantastic job, it, it's really fun to see. And then last week, uh, Ryan shared with us the role of godly servant leadership and God's design for leading specifically here at New Life because we are structured a little bit differently. So today, um, I'm really excited. This is probably, I'll just be honest, I haven't been this excited about preaching about a specific topic more than this one probably ever. Um, For me, this is just the core of who we are as Christians. And because of that, um, I'm just very excited to share with you uh, what God's laid on my heart. So today it's my privilege to share with you what I would consider the most important core value of our church, that of transformative grace. The reason I say this is because the value of transformative grace is really the whole idea of the gospel and the impact it has on our lives. So I want to share with you first what we have on our website. I believe this is a good 60,000 square foot or 60,000 foot view of transformative grace and how we view it here at New Life. So let me read. It says, we are deeply committed to living in and under the transforming grace of God Knowing God accepts us by a sheer act of grace, we welcome and extend his grace to others regardless of where they are on their spiritual journey. Now, this is a very broad statement, right? But what does this really mean for us as Christians and as members of New Life? Why is this a core value of ours? How does this transformative grace play out in our daily lives? What should it look like for each of us as individuals? walking through this life. Now, these are questions each of us should be able to answer and understand how it looks in action. So today, I want to come down and get closer to about a 10,000-foot view of what transformative grace is and what it means to us as a church and, more importantly, as individual followers of Christ. If you just bow your heads with me and pray as we get ready to go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, It is just such a privilege to be able to come together as a body, Lord, to to give praise to you, to fellowship with one another, Lord, in this Christian community, to be able to dig into your word, Father, and understand what you would have for us. Lord, I just pray that you guide my lips this morning, that you have prepared my heart to share what you would have me share, Lord. I pray for confidence in your beautiful word and confidence in your son, Jesus. In his beautiful name we pray, amen. 
Now, before we dig in, I want to first get us all on the same page and provide a brief description or a definition of what grace truly is. A definition that it, what it means for us as believers. Now, Eden's Bible Dictionary explains grace this way. God's forgiving mercy or God's freely, or I'm sorry, gifts freely bestowed by God. Another way you may have heard it described is grace is receiving that which we don't deserve as opposed to mercy, which is not receiving what we do deserve, right? So today's verses are ones we're probably all very familiar with. We've covered them on Sunday morning before, but I believe they're absolutely critical to who we are as a church. In my mind, they sum up the entire gospel. And if we don't have the gospel, what are we truly? So let's go ahead. If you can open your Bibles, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul wrote, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It is for, sorry, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, entered in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I've read these verses probably hundreds of times over the course of my Christian walk. And I have to admit, especially early on, I would breeze through these pretty quickly. And I did not fully appreciate exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to say here. So I think it's important for us to break down these verses and look at how they apply to our lives as Christians. There's basically three separate word pictures or depictions being shared here. Verses 1 through 3 describes our past, pre-salvation. Verses 4 through 6 describes what God did on our behalf and why. And verses 7 through 10 describes our new situation or post-salvation. So today I want to walk through each of these sections and the importance each has on who we are as Christians. We'll then go into what it means for us as individuals and as a church. So I want to read through verses 1 through 3 again. I know we just read them, but listen to them clearly and to the description they are of our past lives. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty 
serious description of our past, is it not? Dead in our trespasses and sin, following the prince of the power of the air, the passions of our flesh, by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. This is pretty heavy. It makes you a bit uncomfortable, which is why at times it's easy to read through and not recognize or admit just how lost we were before Christ entered our lives. But I want to challenge you. You know, remembering where we came from is absolutely critical for us as Christians. Not to beat ourselves up or to debase ourselves, but to remember just how lost we were and would continue to be if not for the work of Jesus on the cross. We don't need or want to dwell on our past, but it's important to never forget where we came from. I want to ask you, have you ever thought about how we look at sin? From my experience, we tend to place grades not just on our own individual sins, but in comparison of our sins to others, right? We grade ourselves in a way that is inaccurate. For me, when I used to think about how I used to view my sin growing up in a Lutheran church, I was looking at it not in relation to a holy God, but more upon what I would call a sin grading curve. Do you remember curves? Right? Do you remember in class? I don't know. For me, I wasn't the best student. So when the teacher announced that they were going to grade on a curve, I was thrilled, right? I was very excited. I was also very annoyed by those students that were at the right end of the curve and kind of skewed things, right? So I want to share with you a, a graphical depiction of what I'm talking about here. Thanks, Noah. So if you look at this, this is, from my opinion, that how the world tends to grade sin. In the middle, that's the mean, right? So here we have 50% of the population to the right, 50% of the population to the left. To the right is more of an A grade, right? Think of Moses, Abraham, maybe Billy Graham, right? Right? To the left, who's down here? Hitler, Timothy McVeigh, Mussolini, some really desperate people, right? And what we tend to do is think, well, as long as I'm not in this F category, even if I get a D, I'll get into heaven, right? Because, you know, God's a loving God. He's, he's, gonna, he's not going to condemn us just because we're to the left of the, of the main, you know? He wants us to be with him, so that, that seems fair. So as long as I get a D or better, I should be okay. But that's not our standard, right? That's not the standard in which we live. So if we can go to the next slide, God's standard, the one true standard, and and look at the comparison. So on the bottom, again, the the, the seriousness of sin. Holy God. Now notice there's an arrow. Why? Because we can't measure how holy God is, right? You also notice at the bottom, everything is an F. And if you notice, we don't even register right? No matter how good we are, we can never perform enough to be saved and spend eternity with the most holy God. So there's a significant difference between these two types of grading. One that we must understand to fully appreciate God's grace in our lives. A critical distinction that we need to comprehend 
to fully understand just how much we require God's grace. Since we have nothing to measure ourselves against except for God's holy standard, in understanding that we can never perform well enough to earn our own way to heaven, we require a hope that exceeds all of man's failures, one that can rely on, that we can rely on, and have complete confidence in. So let's pick up with verse 4. It starts with, but God. Two of the most exciting words you'll ever read in the scripture. Every time you see, but God, just strap in, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that is what grace is all about. That is the hope which we have. But God, that speaks directly to the character of God going forward. He says he is rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Why? Because of his great love for us. Though we were dead because of our trespasses, our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. And if you think about it, he didn't have to do that. He could have let us just pass away at the end of our life. That's what happens with animals, right? They live, they die, game over. But can you imagine the fear, the dread we would have if we knew this was the only life we had? Thankfully, he chose chose to grace us with eternal life. And not just a life like we know today, but a life in eternity with him, with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more fear. You know, when I, when I think about this and the reality of this, I'm, I think of my mom. So my mom, very special person in my life, she passed away back in 2019 after battling decades of health issues from an aneurysm that she had in her brain uh, the first time in 1983 when I was in junior high. Over the course of her lifetime, she went through three separate surgeries. Before this, she was a very beautiful, bubbly, friendly, loving person. But then this came into her life, and it changed life for all of us. And I remember as she aged, her body failed her. Eventually, she became bedridden and unable to even uncurl her fingers. And her fingers and her toes from non-use would cause her extreme cramping and pain. Now, I remember my dad having to try to massage that pain out of her hands. But there was no changing it. That was her reality. What was truly amazing to me, though, that it was this very illness that brought her to a true relationship with God. I saw how her faith grew and eventually sustained her. Even when she had difficulty communicating with me, she could not speak with clear sentences or put words together in a way that we always understood. But even in that, her faith was strong. Her faith remained. And it is because of this demonstrated faith that when I think of her now, 
even though I miss her so very much. I know with absolute confidence that she's healed and in heaven, and I will get to be with her again someday. And that excites me. That excites me so very much. I can't help but smile when I think of it. I look forward to the day when I am by her side, praising God in his eternity. This is the hope that we have. And we have a hope because he loved us and has given us his grace. Now think of the word hope. It can have different meanings based on how it's used, right? I hope we get rain today. I hope to get this new position at work. I hope that you are not mad at me. For some people, especially those who believe that sin is graded on a curve, they hope that they get into heaven. Fingers crossed, right? But we know the truth, and we have a different kind of hope. A kind of hope that is placed in a fact of knowledge and truth. Our hope is an action based on knowledge of the outcome. To be looking forward to our eternity with desire and confidence. We can trust in this hope. We have faith in it. It is not based on a percentage or a guess nor on a curve, but founded on truth and knowledge, knowledge of who God is and of his love for us, and that because of his grace for us, we now have a true hope, a confidence in who he is and what he did for us. That is the kind of hope I want to live with, a hope that only comes through Jesus Christ. So let's read on why God blessed us with his grace, picking up in verse 7. Apostle Paul wrote, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Is that not beautiful? That is just, it just warms my heart to think about that. Why did God shower his grace on us? So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In whom? In Christ Jesus. As followers of Christ, this is our present condition. Now one that I know that at times I can easily get distracted from or push to the back of my mind. But there is no doubt, we have been saved by grace through our faith in Jesus, not of our own doing. But then I love the grand finale, really the description of what transformative grace is. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now when is the last time you used the word workmanship? Don't use it a lot today. In some ways, we don't see it a lot today, right? Quality of things is not all that great. Dictionary.com defines workmanship this way. It says, the product or result of labor and, and skill. Work executed. Now think about that in relation to us being God's workmanship. That, that is who we are. The product of his labor and skill. What's more, why were we created? What is our purpose here in this broken world for good works in Christ? That is what transformative grace really is. 
our good works are a result, a byproduct of his grace in our lives. We don't earn our way to heaven through works. We work to honor the one who saved us through his grace. Now, I think of another example of this, of someone who, in my mind, is a very good depiction of what transformative grace is. Mr. John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader from the 1700s. He was born to a mother who had a strong faith, but who passed away when Newton was only seven years old. His father was a captain of sailing ships. So he got John into the business of shipping human cargo from West Africa to the Americas and Europe to be sold into slavery. A wretched trade and one that Newton contributed to significantly. Each voyage, he would transport over 400 Africans with only about half of them making the way to the final destination. In 1748, Newton experienced a near shipwreck where he almost lost his life. It was this event that made him realize that God had saved him as he cried out to God in the middle of that storm. And at age 47, it changed him. You could even say it transformed him. He returned to his faith, but it was a process. He was back in relationship with God, but he continued to work in the slave industry, not seeing the evil for which it was. Eventually, due to health concerns, he did leave the slave trade and actually became an ordained minister. But God was still working in him. As his faith relationship continued to grow, God continued to work on his heart. As Newton grew in his understanding of his own wretchedness, he came to recognize the wickedness of his prior career. Eventually, Newton began to work earnestly to end the slave trade in England. He partnered with a man named William Wilberforce, an abolitionist politician, to bring an end to this industry. And they finally succeeded nine months prior to Newton's passing at the age of 82. It was a long path. Now you may recognize the words he wrote from his heart when he began to comprehend the condition he had been in when the grace of God latched onto him. Let me read. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Amazing grace, right? One of my all-time favorite songs. A beautiful song to God about the condition of our souls before God placed his grace in our lives. John Newton knew what God's transformative grace did for his life. And because of it, Newton did transform, walking in the grace of Jesus, a demonstration of God's workmanship in himself until the day he died. So I need to ask you, what does transformative grace for mean, mean for us as a church, and as individual followers of Christ, what does our transformation look like? 
Now, as a church, we talk about the discipleship pathway. You should be very familiar with that if you've been around New Life for any uh, period of time. This pathway is really one of transformation, where we take specific steps to become all that God has called us to become. Each of the steps on the pathway are designed to help us grow in our transformation to be more like Christ. So I think we should see it up there. So let's start in the upper right-hand corner, right, where we find community. We are not designed to do this alone. God wants us in community with other Christ followers. Sunday morning, life groups are essential parts to this first step. We must be in relationship with other Christ followers. Making disciples, the lower right quadrant, an absolute must for transformation. For us as a church, our D groups are a critical piece to that, where deeper transformation occurs. Changing the world? We can't keep this good news to ourselves. Once God gets a hold of you, you feel obligated. You feel that you must share with those around you. And the truth is, when we invest in others, we too benefit and grow. And then there's knowing God. Our relationship with him, like any relationship, needs to continually grow. We never fully arrive. And if you notice, this pathway, it's a circle. Why is that? Because it never ends. Until our dying day, we will be on that path of transformation. We won't fully arrive until we pass over. But in the meantime, we are here to be transformed. Now realize, these are not just boxes to be checked, though. You can do all these things and not truly be transformed. You can mentally accomplish each of these steps and never see true transformation. In order for us to be truly changed, we must also surrender ourselves to our Father. We must surrender to allow ourselves to fully rely on God and to allow Him to continue to work on our heart so we may be transformed through His grace. There's another good example of this. We've all heard the name Martin Luther. Now realize he was a devout priest in the Catholic Church and was doing all the right things. He lived among other priests, call that community, right? Trying to follow after God. He studied the word and tried to make disciples of God. He was working to change the world and knowing, knowing God better than most of those who lived around him. But he was still lost. He actually took a trip to the Vatican, hoping that by doing that, he would begin to understand what having a relationship with God really looked like. And he came back empty. So he had all this head knowledge and was doing all the right things. Yet his heart was still searching for, for God. He had the head knowledge but was missing the heart knowledge. It took his earnest seeking to understand who God was, not what the church said he was, but before he came to the full understanding of God's grace. It wasn't until he grasped that he was a sinner and there was nothing he could do himself to make himself more righteous, that he was saved by grace through his faith, that he truly began the transformation that only a full understanding of God's grace can, can perform. And it was this transformation that led to the reformation of the church where the God, word of God was finally allowed to be shared with the common man. I also think of my own story. You know, I, I grew up going to church, a Lutheran church. 
I was a pretty good kid. I didn't do any of those sins there in the F category, right? Thankfully. But I was still lost. And when you think about it, and when I think about it, and I reflect upon it, it has been a slow transformation. You know, when I started, you could say Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3 that we read at the beginning, that was me. I didn't know what I was doing. I was fully in the world, stumbling around with no sense of purpose and absolutely no understanding of the grace of God. I would say my transformation began after Amy and I were married and attended a Southern Baptist church down in Pensacola, Florida. I've shared that story before. But i got to tell you, as a Lutheran going to a Southern Baptist church, um, it was different. They raised their hands. Sometimes both hands, right? They sang with feeling. Not only did they bring their Bibles to church, they opened them and read them. That was new for me. And I'll tell you, I was incredibly uncomfortable. I really was. I, I, I was a fish out of water, and I didn't know what was going on. But God used that to transform me. You know, growing oftentimes is uncomfortable, right? Now, my transition, my transformation continued when Amy and I lived in Oklahoma in 1995 when I, for the first time, truly experienced biblical community. It was with the birth of our daughter, Faith, which in that process, I nearly lost Amy as her heart stopped three times within 12 hours of my daughter being born. But what was so amazing to me is our church family, people that I really didn't have a relationship with, but Amy did, surrounded us, cared for us, prayed for us, fed us. I'd never experienced that. And think about it. My mom had been in the hospital for months at a time. You know, never once did anybody come and sit down and pray with my family. It was a new experience. Then in 2001, our first time truly trusting God when we moved to Ohio with no clear plan for a full-time job or a home. But we were trusting that God was in control. And when I think about that move and where we actually lived in four different houses in 10 months before we finally landed where we live today now. We found new life on this new thing called the Internet. And since I've been here, 2001, it has been a transformation. I can remember the f about two to three years after that, I got a phone call from our pastors at the time asking me to lead a life group. And I said yes. Totally ignorant to understanding what that really meant. Right? Talk about getting stretched. And since that time, we've gone through many trials and tribulations. Even now. This year, God has stretched me, humbled me, grown me in ways I never experienced. As I get ready to transition out of one career that I've known for all my adult life into something entirely new. But it's exciting. You know why? Because as I look back over my life, I see God's hand and his provision and his grace and his mercy. And so knowing that he's in control going forward, I sleep great. I really do. 
I'm excited about the future because I know it's, I'm in God's will. So men, I want to speak directly to you right now. I know from personal experience and fully appreciate that life throws a lot at each of us. Work, relationships, stress, finances. In all that clutter, it's very easy to ignore or push to the back our relationship with God as we try to do all the things expected of us. But let me challenge you. Our families need us to be transformed by His grace. Our spouses, our kids, need to see that transformation in our lives. As we go, our families go. There's no escaping that. Our church also needs to see the transformation in our lives. There is so much work that needs to be done that the church has yet to accomplish. Now, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but who can argue that the world needs men who've been transformed by the grace of God? But it won't happen unless we make the effort to ensure that we are in a deepening relationship with God. It doesn't happen on its own, but must be a priority for each of us. Our hearts must seek Him on a daily basis and be willing to be transformed by His grace. And I fully understand and appreciate that it's hard. But I can also say with absolute certainty that it is worth every second of effort and time that you're willing to give to it. Friends, we as a church haven't identified these core values because they're trendy or they're the right thing to do, but because every organization needs something it says it stands on. We have identified these as our core values because they are the core of the gospel message in God's word. Whether it is biblical community, biblical leadership, or transformative grace, as followers of Christ, we need these in our lives as individuals and as a church because that is what God has laid out for us. Transformative grace isn't a step in a business plan but it's the key component of what it means to be a Christ follower, a component that we can't ignore or push to the back of our lives. It is what we are called to, a gift from God and a blessing and a hope that we can all rely on. Let me leave you with this question. Where are you on the path of transformation? Are you a believer? Or are you still questioning what it means to be a follower of Christ? I'd love to talk to you in either case, if you so desire. If you're a believer, how are you allowing God to transform you? Are you taking the steps to ensure you're following after him, pursuing him in every aspect of your life? And are you offering God's grace to others to see them as God sees them, to love them as God loves them, encouraging them, holding one another accountable in love to God's desire for us to be his workmanship. Now, when the Apostle Paul closes with the words that we should walk in them, it is a call for each of us, a call to walk in his grace, allowing Christ to transform our lives. That is the core of what we believe. You know, when you think about it, Memorial Day is one day And it's meant for us to remember and honor those who have given their lives so we may live free as a nation. 
But I want to ask you, is it knowing that the grace that has been bestowed on us through the sacrifice of God's only Son worth even more? Isn't it worth every day of our lives pursuing a relationship with our Father in Heaven, honoring Him for the sacrifice He made so we may be free for eternity? Now we're going to end with that song that John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace. I want to encourage you to listen to the words being sung, to think about your own brokenness and wretchedness, but also to think about the grace that God himself has showered upon us, for it truly is amazing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do stand amazed at the gift of your grace your love for us, your care, the thought that you've put in to creating a process in which we come to understand who you are, where our hearts can be transformed, Lord, and in the end, we have eternal salvation. That is the hope in which we rely on. That is the only hope in this world that truly matters, Father. So I just pray today, Lord, as we go about our busy, distracted lives, that we can see you for who you are, that we can seek you, that we can come to understand you even more, Lord, and that the workmanship that you have begun in us, Lord, will be continually evolving. We just love you so very much. In your son's beautiful name we pray. Amen.